and biblically. We're in week six of our series on 1 Corinthians, and we're seeing that this is a letter to a church plant that was located in a strategic city in the first century in Greece. And we're seeing that if we will carefully look at the letter in its historical context, that God will speak prophetically to our church. And I'm getting some emails from you, and you're saying, I am loving 1 Corinthians, and it's speaking to me, and God is working in me. So I want to invite us again as a church, let's read this together. Some of you may be on a different reading plan, that's fine. But I would encourage you, we're breaking 1 Corinthians into bite-sized segments. And so today we're going to have 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5, and then next week we'll have the next nine verses. And so I want to invite you to pray and ponder and look at this powerful letter that's speaking to our Lord's right now. I also want to say one of our core values at our Lord's is that we are people of spirit and truth what Jesus talks about in John 4. And so we want to give ourselves to the study of the scriptures. We want to be people of the book, people of the word of God. No matter where you are in your walk with Jesus, you may be a veteran. I want to invite you afresh. Immerse yourself in the word of God. There's something new, no matter how old you are in Christ. So we want to be people of the scriptures and we want to be people who practice the scriptures. We don't want to just read about it, we want to do it and enact it. And this morning we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5 because it's going to speak about that. But I want, to, I want us to look at chapter 2 as we move into it in light of what we've looked at previously. In chapter 1, 10 to 17, Esther talked about unity around the person of Jesus in the face of personality cliques, we're called to be unified around the person of Jesus. And then in 1, 18 to 25, we looked at the message of the cross, how it was scandalous, how it's offensive. It was offensive in the first century. It's offensive to the modern mind now. And then we ended chapter 1 by looking at the people of the cross. We reiterated that God likes to offend the mind to reveal the heart. God likes to pick the underdogs, the marginalized. And so Paul's going to continue to unpack some of these themes in chapter 2, 1 to 5. This passage is mostly about Paul's preaching. It really is. It's Paul kind of pulling the curtain back and he's saying to the Corinthians, this is the message that I came preaching and this is how I did it. But I think that there's something more here Mike and I were talking, and Esther and others this week were saying there's something more about this passage. It's actually not just about Paul's apostolic preaching, his preaching as an apostle, but it's actually a paradigm or a model for all ministry. So you'll see that. Paul has three things that he's going to talk about, three characteristics of his message, his preaching, but it also sets an example or a model for all different kinds, all types of Christian ministry and living, and we'll get to that in a moment. Let's read the text, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5. I'm reading from the NRSV, the New Revised Standard. 
Paul says this, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God in lofty words or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God. This is the word of God. So Paul is laying out here three things, and the first that he's talking about with his preaching, his message, and then what we are supposed to give ourselves to is this very message. It's what we share. It's our focus, our central message. It's the focal point of who we are as a church. Before we look at it, we can see here again, Paul likes this phrase. He likes to refer to the church as brothers and sisters. So Paul is saying, as an apostle, he's reminding them that we're all beloved children in the family of God together. And as I mentioned previously, the ground at the cross is level. So there's no hierarchy here. Paul is saying, brothers and sisters, I'm appealing to you. And look at what he says. He says, I came to you. In order to come somewhere, you have to be sent. And so Paul is saying, I was sent by Jesus, the one that I encountered on the road who rearranged my whole life. He's the one that sent me to you. So I come in his name with his message, obsessed with him. He was commissioned by Jesus. And this is the essence of being an apostle. Paul talks about being a messenger, sent with a message, authorized by Jesus himself. Sometimes this, words, this word apostle gets thrown around loosely, and we're going to drill down into it a little bit today, but the New Testament's pretty clear. Paul's teaching, the Gospels, that there are certain signs of an apostle, characteristics of an apostle. I want to just share a few of those with you. The first is that they have seen the resurrected Jesus. So when Paul comes to Corinth, he's coming because he's sent and he's seen the Lord Jesus himself. That's one sign of an apostle. Another is that apostles in the first century planted and established churches. You can read about this in Matthew 28, Acts 1, Romans 15, 20. An apostle is someone who goes and starts and strengthens churches, usually where they don't exist. Thirdly, they proclaim the kingdom of God, like Paul did at Corinth, and signs and wonders and miracles accompany the message. It's a third feature. And fourth, last but not least here, an apostle's life is marked by Christ-like character. Holiness, humility, sharing in the suffering of Jesus. So when Paul comes to them, he embodies all of these things. And you may wonder, why are you talking about this? There's a debate that continues today. Are there apostles today? Some of you probably have opinions. I could share the mic with you and we'd probably have a difference of opinion here. Some say that there aren't any apostles, that they were foundational leaders in the first century and after they had laid the foundations of the church that the Lord moved on to doing other things. 
Others will argue that there still are apostles. As long as there are saints to equip and people to reach, there are still apostles. Look at this one verse here. You can look on your phone or in your Bible, Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. This will make more sense in a minute why I'm going down this jag a little bit here. Apostles. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. Listen to what Paul writes here. The gifts that Jesus gave that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Interesting word here. Until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. So according to this text here, how long are there apostles functioning in the church? That key word there at verse 13, it's actually mekri, it's used 15 times in the New Testament. It means until. So these gifts are given until the church comes to what? The unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity until we see the image of Christ portrayed in his church. So I know that this is controversial, what I'm talking about, and so I have an easy way out. I don't think that it's very helpful to try to designate, oh, that's an apostle, that's a prophet, that's a, how about we use the word apostolic? What do you think about that, friends? That there are still apostolic people who function in these ways. And I think actually it can get a little bit dicey if we start putting those badges on them. It can get strange. It can go to someone's head because when Paul talks about an apostle, an apostolic person, he says they are the dregs of the earth. They're the scum of the earth. So how's that for a badge? Scum of the earth. Hey, what's your gift? I am absolute scum. I am, the, I am put on display for all of humanity and the angels to look at. I'm actually a bridge for other people to walk across on a daily basis so that they can encounter God and become all that God's created them to be. That is the essence of a first century apostle and an apostolic person. So I think that it's probably more helpful to describe certain people. And frankly, I've only known three people in my 30 years of walking with Jesus that I would say, "Ah, that person's truly apostolic. They fit these characteristics. And you know what? They don't want to be called that. So I want to make a connection here. If you look at the title of the sermon this morning, we could talk about the Apostle Paul's preaching, the way he did it, but I'm actually going to argue that you and I are an apostolic people. Let that sink in for a moment. Am I saying, hey, we're all apostles? Of course not. But we are an apostolic people. So a text like this shows us how to do ministry, how to share Jesus the way that Paul did. Are you interested? Are you convinced? You might say, Brock, how in the world are we apostolic people? I would say this, let's back engineer it for a moment. 
Some of you are on the edge of your seat, right? Brad, you're on the edge of your seat. How are we apostolic people? First of all, we saw in our kingdom series, we're created in the image of God. Christians filled with the Holy Spirit, the image of God in us. We are called to represent God, to carry the kingdom. It's astounding. Secondly, we are actually here today, 2019, we are the spiritual offspring of the first century church, which was established by the apostles. We are sent. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, is for us too. We are sent as apostolic, sent people to go to the nations. Thirdly here, we're beloved sons and daughters in God's family. He loves us. We're brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus himself. We're seated with Christ in heavenly places. Unbelievable biblical truth. And finally, we're the body of Christ. These are ideas that we throw around, biblical themes that we don't let them seek in. You are an apostolic people. I am apostolic because Jesus has sent his church into the world. And we are called to spend our lives on behalf of others. Just think if this really takes a hold of us. You become more interested not in using your gifts, but in seeing other people be activated. Yes, it's about using your gifts, but what if we became absolutely obsessed with seeing people come to Jesus and seeing the gifts of God emerge in them and for them to become all that God's created them to be. That is the spirit of an apostolic people. And I know that is in your heart, but we're gonna do it more. We're gonna do it more intentionally, more aggressively as a people sent into our city, into the nations of the world. What is Paul's focus here if we're seeing that he's modeling for us, he's giving us a paradigm from ministry, what is the focus of his apostolic message? Look, look at the text here. He says in verse one toward the end of that phrase there, the mystery of God. The Corinthians would have buzzed with this word. They loved mysteries and they loved philosophy and these things. So Paul is actually using a word that they were familiar with, but he's going to infuse it with new meaning. For the Corinthians, they heard from their philosophers, there's great mysteries and through various practices and knowledge that you can ascend into the spiritual realm and commune with the gods. Paul is saying, ah, church, the mystery of God that I'm talking about here is that God has come to us God has descended in the person of Jesus. That is the great mystery. God comes to us. We can't even reach out to him. Grace, he comes to us in his mercy and reveals the great mystery. What is the mystery? Is it some abstract thing that we've got to figure out from hidden writings, hear from a secret teacher? What does Paul say the mystery is? The phrase goes on to explain it. The mystery is Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's doing a number on their thinking here. This is at the heart of Paul's message. This is at the heart of being an apostolic sent people 
Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's shorthand for the whole story of Jesus. So when Paul says, I came to you and I talked about Jesus Christ and him crucified, he means the one who came to us, the incarnate word of God, the one who lived a sinless, beautiful, merciful life for the sake of others, who died on the cross, who was raised from the dead, who ascended into heaven, who poured out the spirit with the Father. That's what Paul is saying. This is the mystery that's revealed to the nations. Now, does it mean that Paul only came saying Jesus Christ and him crucified, Jesus Christ and him crucified, and he excluded everything else? No. But he is Again, touching that nerve, that message, Jesus Christ and him crucified, triggers something in human nature. And so he is directing over and over again, this Jesus that I'm talking about isn't a great philosopher. He's the crucified Messiah. And he's brought salvation to and through his church. So this is Paul's singular focus and passion. He's obsessed with the Lord Jesus can I share something from the historical context that isn't boring, I don't think? Can I for a moment here? I just, I was geeking out this week preparing and there's a group of people wandering around the streets of Corinth and they're called sophists. And it looks like sophists. And we've heard that word Sophia. These were people that were given to wisdom. And they would wander around the streets and Paul has to deal with them because they are infiltrating the church at different times. And these sophists came with sophisticated arguments. They tended to be suspicious and skeptical. And Paul is dealing with them in these verses right here. They came with persuasive words of wisdom. Boy, could they argue. They could debate. They could convince. They could entertain. Wow. They could work a crowd. And Paul says, you know what, friends? I'm not doing what the sophists did. I'm actually coming and saying, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's my message. And so he's pulling the rug out from under the sophists. Because the Corinthians were naturally wired. They were like, Paul, entertain us. Bring us a word. Tickle our ears. Use those words of wisdom. And Paul says, no, I'm putting up right in your face. I'm parading the person of Jesus and him crucified. And all that means for you, he saves you. Powerful thing that he's doing. He's got laser-like focus on the person of Jesus because Jesus had rearranged his whole life, right? This was a guy who persecuted the church hated the church, hated Christ. That whole movement, he wanted to stamp it out and Jesus appeared to him and said, Paul, you're the kind of guy I'm gonna use. I'm gonna send you now to the Gentiles. So Paul is showing us here really importantly, the model for ministry is absolutely focused on the person of Jesus. A second thing here, Paul shows us the way that he preached and shared, but then the way that we share Jesus with others, and it's rather surprising. It's not Tony Robbins. It's not dig down and show your power. It's actually weakness, 
fear, and trembling. How's that for a pep speech? Hey, Jordan, you're gonna go and share the message, the offensive message of Christ crucified and do it in weakness. Do it with a little bit of fear. Do it with some trembling. Wait, are you hearing me wrong? The sophist would have said, do it in full confidence. Be persuasive. Use these words, manipulate people. Use rhetoric. And Paul says, no, I came to you, church, acutely aware that I have nothing in myself. So Paul is showing us the way that we share. And he uses these three words here, weakness, fear, much trembling, because it's the opposite of these professional philosophers. Weakness. And there's different theories on what all this means. We don't know. But Paul uses these words here Some commentators think maybe Paul had a physical ailment. Maybe he came, he was weak because he was sick in his body. Maybe he had vision problems. We're not sure. 2 Corinthians 12 talks about this. Paul was a weak man. He was unimpressive. He talks about this at different times. Some people say, well, the word here, weakness, actually means it touches on financial impoverishment. Maybe Paul at times was absolutely desolate. He was struggling. His business wasn't going so well. So when he comes, he comes in weakness. The next words here, fear and trembling. This is kind of beautiful here. He was aware of the presence of God. These are Old Testament words that conjure up fear and trembling. It's not that he came and he was like, oh, God doesn't like me, I'm insecure about this. No, he realized the presence of God was moving in Corinth. And what was his response? Holy fear. God is at work among us. So he wanted to conjure up images. You can look at, write this down and look at it later. Hebrews 12, 20 talks about when the presence of God comes to the church, there is awe. Some people are on their faces. That's what Paul is talking about here. I came to you with the fear of the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord is clean, right? So it's not fear of punishment. It's respect and reverence. This is God and God's message. So Paul gives us these words here, and he models for us being stripped of unhealthy self-confidence, Some of us say, well, I could actually use a dose of self-confidence. That's okay. Paul isn't addressing that necessarily. He's just basically saying to the church, I came to you and I'm giving you a model of relying on God, God's power. That's what he's getting at. Reliance on the Lord. Then he goes on to talk about, look at the text here. He reiterates that his speech and his proclamation were not intended to be persuasive or impressive. We talked about that last week. The Lord doesn't call us to be impressive. The Lord calls us to be faithful. And the Lord calls us to do our best with what we've got. That's what Paul is saying here. And I want us to be aware of some of the things that are going on behind the scenes here. We are taking this instruction to heart as a leadership team, as a staff. We want to use this kind of model among us. We're not trying to be impressive, friends. We're trying to build teams. 
And teamwork has a way of undermining slickness and impressiveness. You with me on that? So we have a tendency sometimes to build things around certain people or personality types. And Paul is getting to the the heart of that. If we want an empowered, sustainable church that's here 42 years from now, we take these things to heart. Not trying to be impressive. We're trying to mobilize an army here. And we have the long view in mind. So when it comes to worship, we're going to raise up a team. When it comes to preaching, we're going to raise up a team. And part of that, believe it or not, is behind the scenes, we give each other feedback. Sometimes in the business world, we do things that we may not do in the church, but I want you to hear, I'm kind of letting you in a little bit here, we are giving each other very specific feedback. Next week, guess what? I'll meet with Mike Milner, and you know what he'll do? He'll give me feedback. And usually we'll say a few things, hey, this went well, I affirm you here, and then I want to challenge you in a couple of areas. And you know what? I am eating it up. I love it. If all we do is slap each other on the back and, hey, great job, what do we do? And this is true for groups as well. If we begin to have a culture of affirmation and affirming each other and saying, hey, we want to grow, don't we? Can you imagine what that would be like? Again, not trying to be impressive, but trying to be faithful. Why does Paul do this? Now he begins to shift gears here a little bit. If you look back at the text, he comes in weakness, fear, trembling. And he does this at verse 4. Why? Why is my speech, why is my preaching like this? So that it makes room for a demonstration of the Spirit and power. This means many things for Paul. Sometimes the words are interchangeable. So when he talks about a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, the NIV actually fuses them together and says the Spirit's power. I think Paul is speaking of several things here. When he talks about his message coming, he's not trying to be slick or impressive. He wants to see a demonstration of the Spirit and power. He's talking about a few things. One is the conversion that happens. The power of God's released through the message of the cross and people get rescued and saved. It works on them. So conversion, you know what happens when people heard Paul's message? The gifts of God were activated in the people at Corinth. They're regenerated and the gifts of God begin to flow. So Paul is talking about that as well. He came and he would speak and he would expect for the Holy Spirit to move and for the gifts of God to be activated in the church. A third thing here that Paul is speaking of is signs and wonders and miracles. So when Paul would bring the message of the cross, he expected the Holy Spirit to move and for sick bodies to be healed, for people to be restored. And in an age of skepticism and suspicion and reasons to not believe this, do you know, my friends, we have one of the greatest arguments you could ever have. And it's the apologetic of transformed lives. 
What do I mean by apologetic? That's an argument. So Christian apologetics are arguments or answers. And church, we have communities filled with changed lives. I was just reflecting on this, Paul, demonstrations of spirit and power. What do you mean? And I began to reflect on some of the people that I've known, some of the people I know in this church and other churches all over. I actually had a friend in Chicago who confessed in church to murder. He had murdered someone in a gang initiation, shot him dead, and yet Jesus forgave him, changed his life. He became a man of love and mercy and shared his faith with people. That's an apologetic right there, a transformed life. Had another friend who um, couldn't have enough sex. He was looking for fulfillment and connection and he had more sexual partners around Chicago than just about anything I've ever heard and the Lord saved him and redirected that longing for fulfillment and connection. And he became a crazy Jesus person. And the Lord touched that part of his life and changed him. The demonstration of the spirit and power operating in his life. Had another friend, I met him in Turkey. He was a committed Muslim. He was filled with demons because he had opened himself up to the occult and was doing daily incantations. And I mean, the dude was an absolute mess. The Spirit of God came on him, changed his life. And now he's an evangelist in Turkey. So this is what Paul is getting at. Demonstration of the Spirit and power when we bring the message. Not just Paul in the first century, but when we bring the message, we point to the person of Jesus he unleashes power. The final thing here, quickly, Paul talks about the purpose. Why is it? We've seen the what, the how, and now why we share this message. Verse five. If you had to put it in your own words, what would you say? Paul says, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on the power of God. So he's getting to the crux of it here. The purpose of doing all of this is so that people put their faith in Jesus. They rely on him. They don't say, wow, that Jay sure is impressive. Jay's life calling is to point to the Lord Jesus. If we wanna know what it means to be an apostolic people, to be his messengers, this is it right here. He did it. He's doing it. He saves, he healed me, he set me free, he's changing my life, he can set you free. He's the crucified Jesus, he's the resurrected one, he pours out his spirit, he works with the underdogs. That, that is what Paul is getting at here. It's as simple as that and we're all qualified. If you don't know him today, give your life to him, he'll do it. He'll change your life. He'll rearrange you. He'll begin to set you free. He will save you on a daily basis. I mentioned earlier, my family was Bible-believing, what would you say, folks? Maybe Bible-worshiping people. We just love the Bible, 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 and believed that God didn't do what he did in the New Testament anymore. 
And so we found ourselves at a church in Kansas City. We were trying to figure out if it was 1989 or 1990. We were at this church and there was a healer, a healing evangelist from India that was there, a man named Mahesh Shavda. And he gave a simple message on Jesus as the healer. And then he said, in this gathering, he said, Jesus has been talking to me. There's some sick people here. I think he wants to heal some people. And he mentioned one person. He said, there's a young man here with asthma. The Lord wants to heal you. I had my 10-year-old brother with me. And I said, why not go forward? So I took my 10-year-old brother up there and Mahesh Shavda from India looked my brother right in the eyes. We'd never seen anything like this. I don't know, mom and dad, what you were doing at that moment, but I'm sure you were praying desperately. And Mahesh looked at my brother and he said, I want you to cross your arms like this and I want you to take a deep breath. My brother crossed his arms, took a deep breath and the power of God hit him. He had no frame of reference for this at all. I caught him, laid him down on the ground, which was green astroturf because we were in an old soccer complex turned into a church and he laid there and quivered for about five minutes. And he got up and he said, I'm healed. And my parents said, what? <laughs> Wait, what? And before he had really severe asthma. He was on three medications. My parents would take him to the ER regularly. It was serious stuff. So he gets up off the ground, healed. And he's been healed ever since. And we ended up going to the Bottomley's house afterwards. My parents helped flesh out some of the details. And my parents were like, hey, let's kind of keep this on the down low. This is kind of a crazy story. And so my brother told Josh Bottomley, Josh, I got healed. This guy from India prayed for me and I got healed and I laid on the ground. He didn't even touch me. God's power touched me. And of course, Josh Bottomley, being very careful, went in and announced it to the whole living room. And there was a pastor, a Dallas seminary grad who happened to be in the room and Josh was like, you wouldn't believe it. Josh Bingaman got healed, slain in the spirit. The Lord healed him. And it made for interesting conversation. But those are some of the the early stories that when we share the message, we can expect a demonstration of the spirit and of power in spite of us. We don't have to work anything up. I remember one of my heroes in the faith, John Wimber. People would say, John, what do you do before these meetings? You see demonstrations of the spirit. You see people healed. You see the gifts of God come. What is it you do? And he said, I drink a Diet Coke. And what they were looking for was 40 days of fasting. You know, FaceTime every day for six hours. And of course, John did those things. But he wasn't pretentious. He said, I drink a Diet Coke. And I go in and expect Jesus to demonstrate his power through me, a broken person. So church, I am inviting us to give ourselves to this apostolic message and a way of doing ministry like Paul models here, the message, the way, the purpose. I'm going to pray for us.
Lord, we thank you for your word. And I thank you that you have called us to be an apostolic people, to be sent by Jesus with his authority, with his power, to do his works. We wait on you.